Well, hello everybody. We are officially back. We took an unintentional break, but we're yeah, we're back with a new episode. Um, I think some of you know this is kind of a pastime for us, so unfortunately we cannot dedicate our full time to it, but we will try to be better about it in the future. Yeah, it's for our spare time and we haven't had much spare time. Farley's been in the States, I've been doing my PhD, and what have you been up to, Dave? Uh, many, many things, but I can't remember what, but very busy. There you go. <laughs> Sounds convincing to me. <laughs> Well, while we were away, we actually got some really fun news. Um, we were featured in BBC Wildlife magazine. They wrote us a nice little review about our podcast, which was really great. And we actually saw a spike in our listeners from the UK afterwards. So appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, UK listeners. Well, go out, find the magazine, buy that. And on with the show. Mollusca. Placozoa. Hello and welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things they do. I'm Farley. I'm Annie. And I'm David. Today we're looking at what animals see and what they don't. We caught up with... Debbie Stewart-Fox and I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne in the School of Biosciences. Debbie studies the colour and behaviour of animals, particularly lizards. So to begin, um, how did you first become interested in animal vision? Oh, well, I love colourful things. That may sound pretty frivolous, but I really do. I'm attracted to colourful things and I happen to like lizards. And when you put those two things together, colour and lizards... I'm a sucker. I just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, of course, as soon as you're interested in colour and you realise that everything else sees the world very, very differently and what I see is not what another lizard sees, let alone, you know, a bird or an insect, you just have to study animal vision. So I guess on that, how do we compare to other animals? How does our vision compare? Well, I think... Animals have very good vision for what they have to do. So you think about what we have to do and we're active during the day and so we've got great colour vision during the day and really bad vision at night. So something like a hunter at night, like a cat, would have a lot um, better sensitivity to light and be able to see better at night. We actually have um, fabulous uh, visual acuity. That means being able to resolve detail from a distance. So birds of prey are the classic. They've got the best visual acuity out there. And we come second hmm. on the ladder of life and visual acuity. So we've got better visual acuity than other mammals. We've got better visual acuity than all these other invertebrates. And that means that we can resolve all these fine patterns and see things from a much greater distance. That's much better than I expected, That's actually. That completely yeah. surprises yeah. me. I always assume we are just the worst at everything. We have like a brain and that's all we needed and so we had nothing else. But I didn't know we were number two. Yeah, that blew me away as yeah. well when I found that out. And I discovered this awesome little program where you can put in an image and if you know the visual acuity of your animal or you mm. can take a guess, then you can pop in some numbers and the distance and it'll blur the image so that you can kind of get an idea of whether, you know, the particular animal that you're interested in can actually resolve these resolve these patterns. So that's that's kind of pattern. But then, of course, there's colour 
and uh, and we're not bad at that either. So, <laughs> it's like the only time it's, it's a win for humans. Jeez. I know. So, I mean, you know, most people know that, that um, we have pretty good colour vision but within a limited range. So some animals have better colour vision um, because they've got a broader range and in particular they can see ultraviolet, which we can't. It's not just one extra colour. If you think about something like purple, which is a mixture of red and blue, you know, being able to see blue doesn't just mean you can see blue, it means that you can see purple and anything with blue in it, green, Mm. you know, so it's a whole other palette of colours. So when I say other animals can see ultraviolet, they see the world in a whole different colour palette to us. That's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't quite thought of it that way before. That's interesting. Even though we might know what wavelengths animals are sensitive to, we still actually have no idea what they see. And the only way you can figure out what an animal sees is you can't ask it. (laughs) (laughs) But you kind of can indirectly by doing behavioural experiments. And so the thing is that, you know, we we might know that they're sensitive to these wavelengths of light, but half of colour vision is about how the brain processes that information and that's where, you know, we come unstuck. That's when we're only just starting to, you know, see the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. So um, there are all these effects like what you pay attention to. You just think about how much information there is in a typical visual scene. And we've got to condense all that. We've got to get an idea of what's important. You know the gorilla dance? No. <laughs> what is that? So uh, I can't So Can you, you do it? You Google it. <laughs> no. Wow. Oh. Well, actually I could because all it involves is, you know, you see people dancing and then someone um, passes through in a gorilla suit and no one notices And that's because we pay attention to some things and attentional um, effects actually affect our our colour perception as well, believe it or not. And then the brain makes all these compensations for shadows it thinks that are there or lighting conditions that it thinks might be, you know, illuminating the scene. So most... most of the visual illusions that you Google that are out there are about the tricks that the brain plays on you. It's not about what the eyes can see. And so I guess that's a really roundabout way of saying that colour vision is is very complex. And so we're struggling to get a really good idea about what animals see. Vision often depends much less on what our eyes see and more on the way our brain interprets information. Imagine a classic optical illusion. You might know you're looking at a still frame, but for some reason it appears to move. Like the one where it spirals, and as you get closer, it kind of looks as if it's kind of swirling together, as if the hole's getting deeper, as if it's spiraling in the center. This is probably a terrible topic for a podcast. Well, maybe just go online and search for yourself. The main point is the brain tries to make sense of what it's seeing and often distorts the actual image in the process. So I'll give you an example because that's really weird or I guess very vague, Um, is that mantis shrimps have 12 different um, pigments in the eyes that they use for colour vision. These pigments are sensitive to different wavelengths of 
of light. And for comparison, we've only got three. And I just said that gives us pretty good colour vision. Yeah. Yeah. And so we always thought, oh, my gosh, if we see so well with three, how does a mantis shrimp see? The world just must be, you know, technicoloured. Yeah, you can't even picture Hallucinogenic, that. you know. Yeah. And, um, but in fact, we see colour very well because our brain compares the stimulation of these different photoreceptors and it's that that relative comparison that, that allows us to kind of differentiate small or, you know, um, perceive small differences. Whereas we think a mantis shrimp, how can it, how can it compare the output, pairwise output of, you know, 12 different pairs of photoreceptors? You think of 12 pairwise combinations, every set of combinations, yeah. it's hundreds yeah. and hundreds. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't have the brain power to do that. So it just processes those separately. It's like a little hyperspectral imaging camera where it just processes all of that separately. And in fact, that gives it poorer colour discrimination. So from all the behavioural experiments, there are colours that we can distinguish that a mantis shrimp can't. And we've only just discovered that. So we could remove mantis shrimp eyes, attach them to our brain, could see everything. <laughs> That's what you're saying. That's all it takes. Like there's some mad scientist to attach a couple eyes. <laughs> Oh, well, they've got all this other stuff going on. It's like, <laughs> so it's not that simple? No, because they've got, you know, they see polarised light and things like that. So, you know, there's the ultraviolet, but then there's all this other stuff. So when I say we're good, we're good at colour vision. Yeah, yeah. We're good at resolving no, detail, yeah. but we don't see polarised light and loads of insects do. So what what do those tests actually look like if you're trying to tell what a mantis shrimp can see? Uh, they look like months of pain, really, <laughs> because, <laughs> because you've got to train a mantis shrimp to um, distinguish between, say, two colours. So if you s- want to know whether it sees the difference between a lighter blue and a darker blue, you've got to train it to always go for the darker blue and you train it with a reward. And some things you can train and some things are really hard to train. Yeah, I can't picture training a mantis shrimp. But the other thing that we're just starting to kind of um, get a grip on in the visual world is goes back to this um, idea of acuity. You know, we've been obsessing about colour vision for a long time and people mostly ignore acuity. That's your ability to resolve um, detail. And yet um, we're learning that it's more and more important because, you know, an animal never observes things from a set distance. It's moving. Mm. And so it'll see things close up and far away. And close up, it might be able to resolve a pattern and far away, it can't. So there are lots of animals. We think of these really bright patterned animals like, um, you know, a whole lot of insects that have yellow and black stripes that have warning colours that say, don't eat me. And we often don't think that for most animals, they won't be able to resolve those patterns from very far away. They only can resolve and see those distinct yellow and black stripes when they get close up. And so what they're discovering is that, hey, actually animals can get, you know, the best of both worlds from far away. When you mix yellow and black, you kind of get brown. (laughs) 
And that's pretty well camouflaged. Yeah, that's interesting. So from far away, they're camouflaged. And then like, you know, if they're spotted closer up, it's boom, they're yellow and black, which is signals toxicity and don't, don't eat me. So you can be camouflaged at the same time as being incredibly um, conspicuous and, and warning coloured. Another example of is these distance effects. You can get the best of both worlds where close up, like a mate, will often see you quite close up. So close up you might have, you know, fabulous um, blue and yellow stripes, like the stripes of a lot of coral reef fish. Blue and yellow stripes is, is a pretty um, <laughs> regular kind of feature. And uh, at a distance they merge to be green, which happens to be you know, perfect match to the algae in the background, for example. So to a predator who will often see an animal from further away or be further away than a mate, to a predator it's camouflaged, to a mate it's conspicuous because you can resolve the colours. So there are examples like that. That's that's always the... <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. The challenge, yeah. A quick recap... Compared to other animals, human vision is actually pretty great. We have good visual acuity, which means we can resolve fine detail, although not quite as fine as a red-tailed hawk. Other animals, including a lot of birds and insects, can also see UV light, which sadly we can't. Brain power is also important, which is why a mantis shrimp with 16 colour receptors can't see as many colours as an animal with three. And what we see isn't necessarily what another animal gets. For example, a brightly striped wasp appears perfectly camouflaged to predators until they get up close. So there are all these kind of distance or context-dependent effects that people are just starting to think about now as well. That's really interesting too because I guess that shows how we would make assumptions that other animals are seeing what we see because we see a wasp from a distance and it's like, yeah, it's yellow and black, but we don't have that effect so much. So are there other cases where we've gotten things maybe pretty wrong just by assuming that other animals see what we see? Yeah, so I think we've got things. So there is, um, we've got things wrong in terms of of color. It was a, a real eye opener to realize that you know there there are cases where animals can certainly see things that that we can't in the in the color vision world. Because we see things differently to other animals, it can be easy to misunderstand what's going on. Take spider webs, for example. From looking at a web, you might assume that it's invisible to insects and that's how they get caught. But spider silk actually reflects UV light and might even attract some insects. Some spiders also decorate their webs with extra silk that might help them catch prey, hide from predators and avoid being flown into by birds. And how does a bee or a butterfly find the nectar inside a flower? Flowers have evolved nectar guides that lead pollinators to the nectar. Imagine it like a runway for insects, guiding them directly to the flower's tasty bits. While some of these markings are visible to humans, others only become apparent when viewed in ultraviolet light. Butterflies are really nuts as well. They use some visual pigments for particular tasks, like they might use just information from one of these I can't imagine how that works, but just use, you know, they use it as discrete information rather than just a colour 
image that we see. So they'll just use information from one visual pigments to find an oviposition site, for example, a place to lay their eggs, um, apparently. <laughs> and then she's a different one for something else? Yeah. They actually, oh, wow. So it's uh, almost to like find different food. senses. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, different senses for different tasks. We can't yeah. imagine doing that. Yeah. How convenient would that be, though? Just if you like to switch off the information yeah, you like, don't want. To yeah. me, females are one color, food's another color. Like, oh, it's green, food. Yeah. Oh, it's red, it's a girl. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so we've spoken about more complex animals. What about more simple animals, like a mollusk? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a lot of simpler animals are able to perceive light. That's pretty fundamental. Like just this basic thing of having light-sensitive cells that um, enable them to move towards light or um, away from light. In in things like mammals and birds, um, our visual systems are pretty are pretty conserved. But in things like snails or mollusks, they've evolved all sorts of kinds of, you know, eyes. Scallops have got eyes all around the rim of their of their shells and, you know, they're mollusks and so are your garden snails which have these two things on the top of their eye stalks that are not great. A snail, <laughs> a snail has really <laughs> poor vision. You know, I'm thinking that if I go and grab a snail, you know, it'd see a looming kind of vague shadow. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes, so in terms of um, whether we see well versus, you know, other things that we're more familiar with like cats, uh, you know, eyes have to follow very basic design principles and those design principles are governed by physics more than anything. So there's always a trade-off between your sensitivity to light where you've got to capture more light and your um, resolution, so resolving that detail. And part of that, of course, is influenced by eye size. So if you want a very sensitive eye, then you kind of need a bigger eye to capture more light and that's why nocturnal animals often have very big eyes. The point of all that is that a lot of nocturnal mammals um, have a more sensitive but got very poor resolution and they don't need to um, see colour well either so they tend to see things in kind of not quite black and white, you know, <laughs> but close to. Some, yeah, you know, it's you funny, know. Yeah, we've, we've like taught forever that, Predators just see things black and white, like the dog or the cat. So it's not mm. quite that. <laughs> no, because um, the the pigments in their eyes are actually sensitive to certain wavelengths. You can actually Google this. They've done some really nice um, recent reconstructions of cat vision. And it's kind of like black and white tinted with a bit of dirty green. <laughs> yeah, I had a look at that actually. It's weird. It's yeah. really yeah. interesting. Yeah, so, um, but essentially they can only detect changes or differences in brightness and very limited ability to detect differences in colour. Um, what about your own research? We've kind of gone so far without talking about your research at all. What specific research are you doing currently kind of with colour? Yeah, so I've always been interested in like, you know, broad scale patterns of you know, diversity, do you get the same kinds of colours evolving again and again? What do they mean? Why? And then so that's at the broad scale. And then at the kind of finer scale, I'm interested in specifically, you know, what what 
um, certain colours mean and I've I've worked a lot on lizards. A nice example is the gliding lizards that you get in, in Borneo. They've got these little dewlaps that they flick in and out, but they also have these gliding membranes that can be beautifully coloured. And there were species with gliding membranes that were bright red and black and, you know, others with a kind of mottly yellow and, and brown. I worked with Danielle Klomp, who was a PhD student at the time, and, uh, you know, everyone thought that maybe they used these colours to communicate because they looked really conspicuous to us, really colourful. And then she noticed that when these gliding lizards, you know, jumped out of a, <laughs> sounds funny, <laughs> jumped out of a tree, <laughs> <laughs> that um, they'd, they'd resemble the movement of falling leaves. And then she noticed that the, the population that she was working on with these bright red and black gliding membranes were in mangroves. And when mangrove leaves, you know, become old and just before they're ready to drop off, they're bright red and black. And so these colours that everyone assumed were for, for communication to attract a mate were actually perfectly matched to the colour of these falling leaves. That's amazing. Uh, That's re- cool. I read yeah. that in, uh, like in, t- uh, <clears throat> in preparation for this. I actually yeah. read that paper of yours. Yeah. Why is that not used as the perfect example of natural selection? <laughs> it's, like, it's so perfect. It's like, oh, they're, they're dead leaves to animals. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, incredible. yeah. yeah. So another animal I read that you worked with were chameleons. So their eyes are just incredible. Do they have the most incredible eyes? I feel like yeah, the- yeah. They move in. Look, everything about them is incredible. <laughs> it kind of blew me away when I was reading yeah. through it. I'm like, oh, I did not know that. Can the fused turn? feet, like the fused toes, so that they can grip the branches. You know, three and two fused. That's cool. The you know the huge eyeballs, but with very small opening. Yeah, because it's it's basically covered in scaly skin, most of their googly eyeballs and these independently moving eyeballs. But, you know, we always think that they wouldn't be able to judge distance. You've got to also, when you catch food in the way that they catch food with a very long sticky tongue, you've got to be pretty precise in terms of judging distance. Their optics work so that they can actually judge distance with one eye. We can't, oh. right? We use stereo vision, but um, they've got two independently moving eyeballs. If you put a patch over one eye of a chameleon, (laughs) which people have done, of course, (laughs) uh, they can still catch their prey. So, How is that possible? We don't know. Oh, yeah, no, no. People have... People have looked in great detail at the specific optics of the chameleon and fish, sand lancers, who actually have googly eyes that look incredibly chameleon-like. Mm. It's basically about the where the lens is and the ability to change the focus and yeah. the distance from the lens and it's complicated optics and I can't remember the details. It's too complicated for this podcast, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. It's not because I can't remember the details. I can't remember. I don't understand these people when they do. And then there's the whole colour change thing for chameleons. I could go on and on and on about chameleons. So have you worked with chameleons? Yeah, I spent four years in, in South Africa working on chameleons because um, 
Well, basically, when I finished my my uh, PhD, I decided I really wanted to go and work on chameleons, and uh, I was told that that was going to ruin my career because, like, why would you trek off and just want to work on an animal? You had to tackle a really important scientific question. And so, of course, I went off to South Africa <laughs> and <laughs> worked on chameleons. It was just heaps of fun because you can't find them during the day because they're very well camouflaged. So they're active during the day. They sleep at night, but you can only find them when they're asleep. And the reason is that they become very, very pale. So essentially all the pigments retract away from the skin surface and they become pale and so you look for them on the ends of grass stalks or on the ends of twigs with a torch and they they um, sleep on the ends of grass stalks and on the ends of vines and twigs to get away from predators and you just look for a chameleon shape and then we had this like you know six meter long telescopic um, fishing rod and we'd tickle the chameleon awake <laughs> <laughs> and then it'd like wake up, you know, very sleepy with its and reach out for something with its little fused hands and then you'd position the fishing rod right in front of its hands so that it would grab onto the fishing rod and then you'd bring it <laughs> bring it down and it was like it was really an neat. art form. It was absolutely <laughs> zen in the art of chameleon catching. It's chameleon fishing. That's really funny. Yeah. What an easy prey item. <laughs> <laughs> Give me something to hold on to, please. <laughs> Yeah, so it was it's um it was loads of fun and then during the day when they were awake we'd do all these experiments on to measure their color change and um so we'd we'd show them, you know, a fake bird and a fake snake or another chameleon on a stick and cuz they can't run away. <laughs> <laughs> Pop a chameleon on the stick, and you sh- you can show it anything, and <laughs> and it'll it'll react, and it'll change colour, and you can measure it, and so that was just heaps of fun, and we um we did that for like twenty twenty odd different species of chameleons in um in South Africa. And so, and and they don't all have the same colours, and some can change colour a lot more than others. So that's what people often don't appreciate about chameleons. There's um, probably around a couple of hundred species now that have been described and some have fabulous colour change and some have, you know, you know, shades of brown and not much, <laughs> not much else. So, yeah, the question is why, why do some species change colour more than others? Yeah. Um, and it's because in those species that change colour a lot, there's um, stronger competition for for mates and a lot of you know quite vigorous competition between males um for for access to mates so stronger sexual selection and that means that there's been selection to have really fabulous colors (laughs) um but as i said because chameleons can't run away they absolutely rely on camouflage they are perfectly camouflaged. That's why we cannot find them during the day. So it's a case of best of both worlds again. They've got to be camouflaged, perfectly camouflaged 99% of the time. But then if they come across a female or another male, they've got to switch on some seriously attractive or scary colours. How long does it take? 
Did you like say mating to change the mating colors? How long would that take? Oh, you know, within seconds. Wow. So, okay. yeah. yeah. They're not impressive. as quick as um, cephalopods, like cuttlefish and squid and stuff, but they're a close second. What is what is a sexy color to females? Well, it depends on the species. So they can do pink and <laughs> pink and yellow, and then the females have got their own set of colors for you know back off. I am not interested. <laughs> so yeah, they they they've got um, quite a repertoire, but the repertoire differs between species. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been great. Pleasure. I want to work with the chameleons now. Yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, that's the episode. Good. If you enjoyed it, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please download and subscribe and do all of those things. And give us some very nice five-star reviews. Yes. Even if you didn't like it, five-star reviews. Only accept five stars. Only five stars. <laughs> and comment. Yes, yes, comments are good. Yes. It makes it look like you've actually reviewed and not just clicked five stars because we told you to. That's the show. Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Orsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer, David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin-Yaw, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.